My approach to the subject tonight is different than I had originally intended. Originally, I wanted to focus on just the one question of how postmodernism affects the view of the necessity of church membership, the related question of the significance of church membership, because postmodernism generally rejects the concept of absolute truth. And if there's no such thing as absolute truth, there can't be any enforcing of membership who is not interested in confessing orthodoxy. There's no such reality as orthodoxy. No preacher can speak with authority, obviously. And there are no elders needed to guard the table from the, of the Lord's Supper from those who may uh, profane the table by an unorthodox confession. And that's an important part of our discussion tonight and consideration. But I determined to deal more broadly and explain something about the church. Because doing my research on this speech uh, gave me an increased love for the church. Love for the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, manifested in the Protestant Reformed churches and manifested in the true church in all of the world. I want to explain the church as the emergent church movement defines it. The emergent church, that is the new church that isn't church but calls itself church, that's emerging out of present-day church. Emerging out of present-day church and away from present-day church. The emergent church movement is a movement. It's not a church by its own admission. It's a movement. It's not an organization with structure or official standing, but a movement. A movement, nevertheless, with ideas, philosophies, spokesmen, books, conferences, a real and powerful movement. The emergent church movement is related to postmodernism, and that's the topic of the speech tonight, postmodernism and church membership. The emergent church movement is related to postmodernism in that the emergent church blames all of the woes of the present-day church on modernism, on modernism. And they see modernism in the present-day church manifested in a number of things. Systematic theology, propositional statements, creeds, logic, certainty, preaching, inerrancy, and teaching by indoctrination. The emergent church movement asks for a method of doing church, it's a favorite expression of theirs, doing church, in a manner that's different than the church does church today, but a manner in which they believe the church used to do church. Practically speaking, to be very clear, the emergent church movement wants to discard everything that they see in the church today and replace it with what they believe to be pre-modern, or what they claim is original Christianity. Now, a couple of definitions are in order so that no one is lost at the outset. The definitions of postmodernism, modernism, and what, for the sake of simplicity, we may call premodernism. But let me start with modernism. Modernism describes the era 
when men believed they could discover the truth through reason and logic and science and observation. Men believed they could discover truth by studying science, by thinking rationally, by observing things. Modernism was a reaction to the preceding era called, for our purposes, pre-modernism, when believed that when men believed that they could know the truth by revelation, by the scripture, as the Holy Spirit illumined the mind and the heart of men. That's what we may call pre-modernism. That was the view of the Reformation era and the church that, of that time. Postmodernism is the era when men believe not that they can come to the knowledge of the truth with a capital T in some third way, neither by reason nor by revelation, but that men are not able to come to the knowledge of the truth with a capital T at all. There is, for postmodernism, no such thing as absolute, unchanging truth with a capital T. In postmodernism, there is no place for truth. It's that aspect of postmodernism that has great influence in the emergent church movement. The scope of change that the emergent church movement proposes in the church today is comprehensive. They call the shift a seismic shift. One of them said, quote, it's 8.8 on the Richter scale. It covers everything and it changes everything. The church's doctrine, everything from theology to eschatology, changes the church's worship. The idea, the very idea of church and membership is different. And the church's very purpose and mission in the world are changed. That's their own testimony. The church must change. Everything must be different. So they speak of rethinking, reshaping, reconsidering, repainting. One of their own said, quote, as the Reformation changed the nature of Christianity 500 years ago, think of the radical change, so the emergent church proposes to change the nature of Christianity today. And that explains the titles of all of their books. Let me give you the titles of three or four of them. A New Kind of Christianity. That's by their guru, Brian McLaren. I'll explain why I call him their guru in a moment. Surprised by Hope. Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Or The Deliverance of God, an apocalyptic rereading of justification in Paul. Or Rob Bell's very familiar, The Velvet Elvis, repainting the Christian faith. A new kind of Christianity, rethinking heaven, rereading justification, repainting the Christian faith. It's not an exaggeration to borrow an expression from Scripture that for them, regarding church, old things are passed away, behold, all things must become new. I've been shaken to the core in my preparation for this speech. I shiver when I think 
about what they are proposing that the church must become today. I feel as though I have been to the lair of the dragon and smelt his foul breath. His cave reeks. Fire comes from his nostrils. His hideous strength is terrifying. And I'm very well aware that if anyone who does not know the Reformed faith hears me say that, they will quickly dismiss this speech as the rant of a fanatic. The testimony of a wild-eyed, hopeless radical, probably no different from that Florida preacher and his congregation who protests military funerals. They will put me, and you, if you agree with what I say, in that kind of category. I'm well aware of that. But you cannot exaggerate the lies of the devil. You cannot exaggerate the lies of the devil. And you remember... You must believe these descriptions, not on the basis of my words, but on the basis of theirs, their own words. There's no resemblance. Let me add an adjective. There is no genuine resemblance between the emergent church and the historic Christian church. There's no genuine resemblance between the emergent worship and historic Christian worship. And there is no genuine resemblance between the faith of the emergent church and the historic Christian faith. And that's where I want to begin this evening. I want to get at the subject that was presented to you regarding the church and church membership. But you cannot understand anyone's doctrine of the church unless you understand the breadth of their theology. Everything is theology, and I want to begin tonight with theology. Apparently, I underline that word emphatically, apparently, the theology of the emergent church is uncertain. That's their own testimony. They would say their theology is undetermined. Theology is not to be known. One of their great emphases, and that's where you see the influence of the postmodern mind, is that one cannot be sure of anything, especially regarding God. And it would be wrong to try to speak in theological language that we understand. The emergent church denies, at least questions, the knowability of God. I say denies or at least questions because most of the time they're raising questions. Often they won't outright deny anything. They'll simply raise questions about everything and leave the answer to be determined by you or me or anyone. They deny, or at least question, the knowability of God. For them, the infinite God becomes the unknowable God. And for them, the incomprehensible God becomes the God who can't be known, period. They say language is insufficient to describe God. And their admission that they can't know God is not embarrassing to them. It's what they would call epistemic humility. And they always want to use fancy words. Epistemic humility is humility regarding the theory or the uh, concept of epistemology, the ability and the science of knowing. They have in their judgment Epistemic humility. 
So one of them says, quote, theology is conceived as an ongoing and provisional conversation. Many, therefore, prefer the descriptor emerging conversation rather than emerging church. But again, I remind you, not only can they not know God, they react against trying to know God because what's important is not knowing God, but experiencing God. And then in one of their patented moves of hijacking an important biblical term or theological expression to make you believe that they're being biblical and theological, they call this kenosis, emptying of oneself. They take the term, some of you may know, from Philippians 2, where the Word of God says that Christ, and some translate that word, emptied himself, And then in a move as shocking as it is unjustifiable, biblically, Christians are called to empty themselves of all preconceived notions, of all formerly understood theological judgments and opinions, and stand empty, waiting to experience God. One of them describes this as, quote, opening up a desert-like space of negation, were metanoia, repentance, conversion. A desert-like space of negation where metanoia can take place. They teach that in this kenotic moment, they are being Christ-like. Their doctrine is mysticism. Their doctrine is experientialism. Listen to them. Quote, God is not an object to be studied, but a reality to participate in. Or, mystery is not an enemy to be conquered, but a partner with whom we dance, and dance we must. I love this truth, they say, about Christian spirituality. It cannot be explained, and yet it's beautiful and true. It's something you feel. Language fails. And if we definitively put God into words, we have at that very moment made God something God is not. The mystery is the truth. So relationship with God is everything. They call the way you and I teach our children and preach. Giving blocks of theological factoids to people. That's the enemy. So they say, quote, we live within the darkness of unknowing. They say the proper hermeneutic leads all exegesis and theology and prayer and Bible reading to its proper end, silence. This is not a silence of waiting or expectation. It's simply being silent within the concealment. And now listen, if you've ever read anything about Eastern mysticism and the religions of India and China and the East, I continue quoting. This is Shatika, and they love also transliterating Hebrew words that you can't understand, but they certainly understand. This is Shatika, an absolute stillness and speechlessness within the void, beyond words, but it's also an ascendant silence, rising towards God, absolute transcendent, transcendence. Sejura is its name. And there they use a uh, uh, word of literature and poetry with regard to 
the empty space, the pause, the silence at the end of every line. Sejura is the name of their theology. Now you understand why I called Brian McLaren their guru. Their guru. It follows then that the emergent church rejects authoritative declarations by preachers and substitutes instead discussions and questions. They don't want monologues in which one person is speaking one direction. They want dialogues in which men and women are conversing. No truth is claimed there. It's all questions. Questions, questions, questions. And not questions in order that you may come in the end to an answer, but questions so that the questions may be left hanging. McLaren said, drop any affair you may have with certainty, proof, argument, and replace it with dialogue, with conversation, with intrigue, with search. No answer is wrong, but neither is any answer right, because questions are the important thing. Quote, what's important is not the destination, but the journey, and questions are part of the journey. You understand that what's behind that apparent inability to know God is their view of the Word of God. Behind experientialism and mysticism and unknowability of God is their view of Scripture. It's not the infallibly inspired Word of God, this, which is in its inspiration organic, verbal, graphic, and plenary, which I just taught Hope Church's young people again Monday night, and all of our young people learn the Scripture is not inspired infallibly. It's stories. It's man-made stories. Quote, If Paul can say that his own grasp of the Gospel is dim, then we must conclude that the Bible itself is a dim witness to the ultimate, unsayable truth of God. God, apparently, cannot be known. Their theology is undetermined. Actually, they know very well what they believe. They have a theology, a clear theology. They're very sure of what God intends with men and with the church and with the world. They are determined in their rejection of Orthodox Christianity They are resolute in their aim to overthrow what we know as Reformed Credal Christianity. I underline Credal. One of them said to be Credal makes it almost impossible to be emergent. They are convicted in their hatred of systematic theology, the kind of theology that you can understand, grasp, and either agree with or disagree with. And they are firm in their pride to be known as heretics. They are proud of being called heretics, that is, those whose teachings contradict the essence of biblical doctrine as the church has critically expressed those biblical doctrines. And so one of their books is proudly named, quote, A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. Very unsure of what the Bible teaches, they are very sure of what they believe and what they will teach. Every doctrine of the Reformed faith is rethought, repainted by being redefined. 
They will use the terms that you are familiar with, but they will give every one of them a definition that turns that doctrine on its head. Truth and orthodoxy, to be general, become what you experience. Quote, the orthodox Christian faith does not contain many paradoxes. It is a lot paradoxes. Bad grammar, too, to make you wonder what they're talking about. According to Rob Bell, reformed and always reforming, he likes to. But by that he means everything that the reformers wrote, they knew would have to be revisited, rethought, reformulated, and reworked. And then I quote Bell, by this I don't mean cosmetic superficial changes like lights and music, I mean theology, the beliefs about God, Jesus, the Bible, salvation, and the future. We must keep reforming the way the Christian faith is defined, lived, and explained. All the old biblical terms are given new meaning. And I want to mention a list of eight or nine of them, and then go on to the important part of church membership. You can't understand the doctrine of the church if you don't understand their theology. In no particular order, I start with heaven and hell. And let them speak about these realities. Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of people God loved for whom Jesus died. Hell is full of people whom God loved and for whom Jesus died. Hell, quote, is a place, an event, a situation, absent of how God desires things to be. Famine, death, oppression, loneliness, despair, death, slaughter. They are all hell on earth. Heaven is life on earth as it finds an intersection with spiritual things. It's not a pie in the sky and all by and by, but life among men in a hard world. This is the definition, not from the Bible, of heaven and hell, but from their own minds and thoughts. Second, faith. Faith. Quote, I've been told that I need to believe in Jesus, which is a good thing. But I'm learning that Jesus believes in me. I've been told that I need to have faith in God, which is a good thing. What I am learning is that God has faith in me. And an atheist is a person of tremendous faith. It's pretty hard to redefine total depravity, so they simply reject total depravity. Quote, Jesus believed in original goodness. And the doctrine is, quote, of total depravity is, quote, biblically questionable, extreme, and profoundly unhelpful. The virgin birth also is not redefined, but it's discussed. It's simply dismissed as unimportant. The virgin birth. The Trinity is defined in terms so vague no one can understand them, and if you study it careful enough, you'll recognize all of the ancient heresies with regard to the Trinity. And if you thought that was bad, wait till you get to the cross and the atonement and propitiation and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The emergent church's theory of the atonement is not penal substitution, where the Son of God takes the place of the people of God to suffer the wrath of God. You'll recognize their theory, but it's not our doctrine of 
the atonement. So the new book is, their book, Saved from Sacrifice, A Theology of the Cross, by which they mean to say they are going to save you from the old doctrine of the cross as a sacrifice, God's sacrifice of God's Son, and give to you a new theology of the cross, which is not at all a sacrifice. Quote, a God who must punish out of holiness or justice in order to forgive is morally objectionable. They call our doctrine divine child abuse. That is, it didn't happen that God provided his son as a sacrifice substitute for you and me. So Reformed theology in their terms is ridiculed as turn or burn theology. Turn or burn. They believe that theology was invented by Anselm in the 11th and 12th centuries. Their view, quote, flips atonement theology upside down. Jesus did not come to die. He came to give life and give it abundantly. Christ came to end that sacrificial logic that God required a sacrifice for our sins. It's not God, but we who are wrathful and punishing. God offers a lamb so that we might see our sin and accept God's alternative, which is goodness and grace and mercy. Reconciliation, then, is not what you thought it meant. The God, I quote, who paid the cost of the cross was not the one who charged it. We are saved from sacrifice because God suffered it. To be reconciled with God is to recognize victims, to convert from the crowd that gathers around victims and be reconciled with each other without them. I've had enough. Are you not angry yet at what you hear coming from all areas of the church world today? This is not just Mars Hill. This is the theology that's infiltrating all kinds of churches, including Reformed churches. If that's their view of the atonement and the cross, then you understand what governs their doctrine of justification. is not Romans, but the new perspective on Paul by N.T. Wright and Ben Witherington III and Raymond Brown and so forth. It's not the doctrine of double imputation. The sins of the people of God and their guilt imputed to Christ and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that's not justification in their view. They call that ledger shuffling, more mockery of the true Christian faith. One of theirs has, quote, a problem with the Reformed concept of justification by faith, the idea that one gains salvation by believing in Jesus. They have a problem with that. A little bit more, and then I get to the church. Listen carefully to this long sentence. If, and now I'm reaching back to everything I've said, if Christ didn't die as payment for sin, if men aren't sinners in need of redemption, if reconciliation is not us to God, if justification is not God's declaration of our righteousness in Christ, if hell is not the punish the destination of unbelievers, and if heaven is not the dwelling place of God with his elect and redeemed people, then you understand what their doctrine of the kingdom is. Social justice here and now. Peace on earth here and now. Community transformation 
making the world a better place to live. It's not the forgiveness of sins. It's not peace with God. It's not holiness of living. And it's not hoping of heaven. And it has nothing to do with the church. And if perhaps the kingdom, in their view, has something to do with the church, if that the church is one of God's many instruments to be used to establish the kingdom, and then you understand that when the kingdom is established, their kingdom, the church may pass away as an unused, unusable, any longer instrument. Ironic as that may be, this is modernism. This is liberalism. This theology was described at the beginning of the 1900s by a man this way, describing liberalism. A God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. What else is the doctrine of the emergent church but that description of 150-year-old liberalism. And you understand now also that the claim of the emergent church folk, that they object to doctrine, theology, creeds, and that they claim to be uncertain, are all smoke screens for their determined and intense opposition to God's gospel. I must be as clear as clear can be. We must not tiptoe around the identification of this movement. When a fire is raging, you pound on the doors. You shout for all to wake up and to run for their lives. I couldn't make from scratch a church that's a clear description of the anti-Christian church than the emergent church movement today. If you understand that, then you can see why their ecclesiology is what it is. What's their teaching about the church and membership in the church? Now, that will all make sense. But you can't understand that question unless you understand their theology. I'd like to deal with this next point by asking you to imagine what it would be like being a member of that kind of church. Now, I imagine most of you are members of Protestant Reformed churches. Some of you may be members of other Reformed churches, especially perhaps those who are listening over the Internet tonight, for which we are thankful to have that opportunity. I ask you, Imagine what it would be like to be a member of a church that has been influenced by that kind of postmodern thinking. What does that church look like? First, the mission of the church has changed. Second, the liturgy of that church has changed, the public worship. Third, Membership, office, and all of the other official matters of church have changed. And in the end, the church itself is not church. Listen, listen, and ask the question, what would it be like to be a member of that church? One of those churches. First of all, the mission of the church is different. That is, 
the calling of the church of Christ in the world. It's no longer to bring the gospel so that men are, quote, saved from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1. By repenting and believing in Jesus Christ and turning from idols unto the living God, it's no longer gathering believers into groups so that institutions called churches can be established. It's not to form denominations and send missionaries out to establish more churches and train preachers in orthodox seminaries. It's not to defend itself against worldliness and tell the world to expect the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. That's not the mission of your church anymore if you are a member of this church. Now the church must be missional. Missional. That's their favorite word with regard to the calling of the church. Be careful with your use of that otherwise, all by itself, legitimate term. The mission of the church is to establish the kingdom, their idea of the kingdom. So Brian McLaren can even say, quote, I do not believe that making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. Their guru, their main writer, their leader. He continues by saying it may be advisable in many circumstances to help people become followers of Jesus and remain Buddhists, Hindus, or Jewish. What would it be like to be a member of an emergent church? Their mission has changed. What would it be like to be a member of an emergent church? Their liturgy has changed. Their worship has changed. It's no longer preaching with authority. Authority is modern. Authority is evil. Authority is abusive in their minds. It's no longer reverend assembly before a holy God. It's no longer singing the Psalms of the Old Testament. It's no longer administration of the sacraments by which infants are incorporated into the church of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ is memorialized before our eyes and more. No, it's discussion. It's telling stories. Not from the Bible. Their own stories to see how their story fits in the story. I want to tell you about one of the books that I read I was tempted to take the whole pile of them along tonight, but refrained from doing that because I didn't know what to do with them all. But in one of their books, they offer ten scripted liturgies, ten scripted orders of worship. All of those liturgies start with the congregation entering the bar, of course. They worship in pubs. That's their favorite place to meet. And in that bar, they hear ambient house music. They have a DJ offering some voiceovers. And they usually see something in the center of the room that becomes their focus of worship. And then someone enters, carrying a book that looks like the Bible but isn't, begins reading that book that isn't the Bible, a story that sounds like a parable but it's not scripture, and tells a story to which the people respond and react that makes, quote, the listener think about social justice, life without God or a crucifixion 
without a resurrection. There's no gospel. Intentionally. Maybe at the end, the people walk outside to burn an image of God in a trash barrel. Tie pieces of sackcloth around their hands or take some trinket or artifact home to remind them of what they experienced. And one week, this is what was recommended. A CD with 45 minutes of silence. What would it be like to be a member of an emergent church that listens to and follows the instruction of their leaders? At its worst, in one of their liturgies, the people forgive God. The people judge God. In another a beer-chested man has words like gay, queer, homo, and fag painted on him. And all of that, in their judgment, saves. And if you would ask them how that saves, they would say, we don't really know. This is what they say, quote, the gospel is telling Jesus' story, and that story somehow brings forgiveness of sins and justification. What would it be like to be a member of an emergent church whose mission is not the mission we've all known, whose worship is not the worship of the historic Christian church? And with regard to membership and offices in the church, about which we read in 1 Timothy 3 about elders and deacons, Membership in the church is no longer your name on the rolls where elders know you, supervise you, and your children. Go to their website. See what it takes to become a member, a member, whatever that means now, of an emergent church. It's no longer a solemn vow that you make at a confession of faith to maintain the doctrines of the church and live a godly life according to the Ten Commandments. Is it? their website, and hear them tell you what church membership is all about. Be involved in a local church, but, quote, maintain open definitions of church and denomination. Because others with you in this emergent church are all of the other kinds of Christian faith, nominal Christianity, all non-Christian faiths, and atheists. They list them. Go to the emergentvillage.com and read their history, read their practice, read their theology. There are Protestants and Catholics, Anglicans and Episcopalians, Evangelicals and Charismatics, Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans and Anabaptists and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and, yes, by their own admission, atheists. Quote, when I say I'm a universalist, what I really mean is that I don't believe you have to convert to any particular religion to find God. As I see it, God finds us, and it has nothing to do with subscribing to any particular religious view. What would it be like to be a member of an emergent church? Quote, What is somewhat remarkable among emergent Christians is the acknowledgement that this is their own judgment, not about them, but by them. They are saying this, that flashes 
of God's kingdom are just as likely to be found among those who do not identify themselves with Christ as they are among those who do. God's kingdom is manifested just as well among those who do not confess Christ as those who do. And emergent Christians, they say, are comfortable and content to cooperate with anyone, anywhere, who is about the business of God's kingdom, regardless of religious persuasion or a complete lack of religious sensibility. Emergent Christians are marked by a spirit of collaboration. What would it be like to be a member of an emergent church? The mission is different. The worship has changed. Membership isn't what it was anymore. Now we are ready to dismantle the church itself. That's not exaggerating. The emergent church, quote, is against the institutional church. That's their words. That is, quote, organizational form around faith is not necessary for the future of faith, end quote. Organizational form around faith, they mean what we know as church, is not necessary for the future of faith, end quote. Their faith, which is not the faith of the God of the Bible. Don't be soft on the emergent church movement. Don't pull any punches. Your calling is not to find the good in some of their emphases, which is not a little like praising rat poison for all of the corn in the bag. This is my only real criticism of the otherwise fine book by DeYoung and Cluck about the emergent church movement entitled Why We're Not Emergent, parentheses, by two guys who should be, an otherwise excellent book, it's too soft. It pulls punches. It doesn't identify the movement as the anti-Christian movement that it is. And that's what's necessary for us. The beast is real. His strength is hideous. The fire that torches out of his mouth consumes young people and children. It has, it is, and it will. So read, 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 read much. That's what the RFPA is all about. But don't take it from me. Go into his lair and smell it for yourself and gag and quake so that you can return to your homes and your families and your churches shaken as I was shaken with a desire to pound on doors and shout, Beware regarding the errors of the new day. These are the errors of the new day, which really aren't any different from the errors of the old day, but they look so. Though I have that criticism of that book by DeYoung and Cluck, I don't know where you could do better than their book to read about the evils of the emergent church movement. And while you're reading DeYoung, read his other book, What is the Mission of the Church? Because when you read it, you'll almost think that you are reading the writing of a Protestant Reformed minister. So straight is he with regard to historical, cradle 
orthodox definition of what is the mission of the church. Don't be nice. That is, don't be soft on the emergent church movement. Beware of the enemy. Keep doing what by God's grace we have been doing, what genuine Christianity has always done. Preach the truth. Be instant, in season and out of season, with sermons that are doctrinal, theological, and controversial. And let us never preach in such a way that the congregation is passive. Indoctrinate the children in catechism. Indoctrinate them. That's what the emergent church movement despises so much because they know it's our inoculation of our young people and children from their influences. Indoctrinate them in catechism. Keep on teaching catechism. One of the most precious tools the Church of Jesus Christ has ever had. Cherish it, people of God, the practice of catechism. Teach the doctrines of God, not as mere propositions that you stuff up here in your brain, but as the Essentials Catechism book describes it in the first question and answer of the first lesson when they ask, what is above all things most precious? The knowledge of the God who can be known. I want to practice what I preached in my most recent series of editorials in the Standard Bear about polemics. Love the precious truth that God gave us. When you fight for it, fight for it because you love it. Love the friendship that we have with God, which is the covenant, and live it. Defend it. And live it. We must not fight against the beast unless we love the church that the beast intends to destroy by imitating the church himself. Love the church. Give your life for the church. In whatever occupation you find yourself, give yourself to the church of Christ. I almost ended the speech tonight by saying there comes a day when that beast will emerge from his lair and fly above Christianity and spew out of his mouth the poisonous filth and the fire that destroys churches and people. Until I thought about the reality that he has. He's flying. He's spewing. He's spitting. To oppose him now in his spirit and influences and start with myself and yourself. Oppose the spirit of this Antichrist within you where you find it coming up out of your old man and your nature. Oppose him in your own home and family. Oppose him in what you see and refuse to see on the television and the computer screens. In what you listen to and what you read, oppose the beasts and be strong in the true faith, the truth of God in Jesus Christ, knowable, the knowable God through the scriptures that we read and that we preach. Something you can be sure of and that establishes you. 
Be the church. Be the pillar and the ground of truth. Thank you.